What is good, everybody? I'm so glad that y'all are here today. I'm happy to be back after a little Thanksgiving break. I hope all of y'all enjoyed your Thanksgiving. Hopefully you had a great time with your family. Hopefully everyone was happy and healthy. I know for, for me, historically, uh, well, I wouldn't say historically, but at least the last couple of years, really didn't have much of a Thanksgiving. Uh, either was sick or had newborn children. Uh, so it, it really wasn't much of um, turkey and, and stuffing and ham. And so I, I really do hope that y'all had great Thanksgiving and time with your family. Uh, but hey, guess what? We are into chapter four through through Ephesians. We're, we're making headway. Um, we're getting there. In, and now it's about time to start thinking about what what we're going to look at next when we're done with Ephesians. Um, I, I'm definitely open to suggestions. There's a lot of different things that you know I'd love to cover and, and could go over, certainly. But if y'all have suggestions on either various books or letters in the Bible or various topics or various verses or passages that you may want to hear be talked about and you know studied on the podcast i'd be happy to know and you can always reach out with those suggestions on uh, facebook on the uncensored christian facebook page Um, i interact with people there quite often Uh, the email on the uncensored christian email on my instagram page as well and you can find all of the links to those various pages and emails uh in the description below, there's a there's a big um, link.bio, I believe, is the platform. And if you go down in the description or the show notes, you'll see that link. It has uh, links to all the various social media and to the um, YouTube versions of the podcast, if you like listening on YouTube as well. But I'd be open to suggestions because we are getting close to the end of Ephesians. There's a couple more chapters left. But as you know, we like going at a snail's pace when going through (laughs) these studies. And today is no different. We're getting through three verses today, but I actually really like these three verses and they do seem to set, um, they, they act as a nice header, if you will, into the fourth chapter and what Paul is going to be leading into and focusing on now that he has gotten done kind of laying out the foundation and the thoughts that the believers that he's writing to need to keep in mind as they are navigating a new life, a a new culture, a new society, really. You know, they were once divided, right? Jew, Gentile. um, And now they're supposed to be not just, you know, being civil around each other, but they're supposed to be working together and they're they're supposed to be seeing each other as being part of the same family, brother and sister, being a part of one body. They're supposed to be working together and, and that certainly would have thrown them for a loop. And you can imagine a situation if you were like if you were in a situation like that, that it would be a struggle for you as well to not just have to accept that you are going to be living in the vicinity of a group that you once looked at as less than and other and wrong, but now you have to look at them as equals and you have to work together and you're supposed to love them and cherish them and see them as a part of your family. And so Paul is navigating these waters and I believe he does an absolutely astounding job in the fourth chapter, but we're going to be looking at the first three verses here. So like we always do, let's just read through them and then we'll break them down verse by verse and see what we're able to learn. So Paul says, I therefore, 
a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So, let's break this down. Verse 1, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So, Paul is now calling for action. And he's doing this following the correction slash theology that he has laid out in the first three chapters of this letter. Because if you remember, he just got done telling the believers that through a knowledge of God, they can come to know the power of Jesus and their newly inherited place in God's family. He reminded them that without Jesus, they would still be living under the desires of the devil while being children of wrath. They would still be sinning. And for the Gentiles specifically, he reminds them that they would still be alienated from God's chosen people and his promises. But now, because of Jesus and because they follow Jesus, they are also now under one body, the body of Christ with Jesus being the head. And this new body consists of a diverse people with one singular call. And that calling is to worship and follow Jesus. And and this body cannot and should not be separated over superficial disagreements. And Paul points out one in particular, uh, circumcision. Paul informs them that this body, the, the church, is the new dwelling place of God. It's the new temple. And as a consequence of that, anyone who decides to divide with this new body, this new temple, won't have access to God's dwelling presence. So Paul continues on to let them know that this is the reason why he is so adamant about preaching to the Gentiles. We covered this in, in uh, chapter 3. He calls this a uh, mission that he's been given to go to the Gentiles. He calls this God's grace that was given to him. And this grace and this newfound purpose that Paul received leads us to what he says here in chapter 4, verse 1. And I'll, I'll, I'll quickly remind you what it says. With all of this in mind, Paul says, Therefore I, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And Paul wants us to understand that he is a prisoner for the Lord. Now, this isn't just some phrase that Paul is using to make himself seem more holy, or it isn't a a phrase that's another way of understanding that Paul is just bound to what God says, because we see this in some of the other letters. Um, A lot of the other letters from some of the other apostles in the New Testament will have them say that they're a bondservant to Christ or um, a slave to Christ or something along those lines. And that's not them saying that they are being physically a slave under just some random human master, but they also serve Christ. That's their way of saying that I fully submit myself to whatever Christ calls me to do. So in their eyes, they literally are his slave. They're literally his servant. They do not live for themselves or their desires. They live fully 
for Christ. But what Paul is saying in this particular verse is not the same thing. Paul is speaking quite literally because we know that at this point in time, Paul is currently in prison because of his work towards the gospel. Paul is literally in a jail cell because he is serving Jesus. And this is a part of the suffering that Paul alludes to in chapter 3. So here, what Paul is doing is he sets the scene. He's letting them know, hey, uh, I'm in prison. I'm facing persecution. And with that in mind, he has called on the believers that he is writing to to set aside their disputes. And, and, and I'm not talking about any kind of dispute. We're talking about the surface level, superficial disputes. So we've gone into great detail in this in previous episodes. But he's calling on them to set aside those disputes so that they can find unity in Christ. And this whole letter so far has been building the foundation and the reasoning for what Paul is about to call on them to do now, which is a call for action. Paul is calling on these believers to not just understand the theology behind what Paul is saying, but he is calling on them to act on this newly revealed information that they have just learned. He calls on them to walk in a manner that is worthy of their calling. So that's important. Because in Paul's eyes, it's not enough to just know what is right and what is wrong. It's not enough to just simply know what God's word says and means. If you leave it at just that, for Paul, it, that's not enough. And for us, it's not enough either. Paul makes it very clear that you actually need to do something with the knowledge that you have learned, with the revelation that you have received. You can't just sit on it. You, you can't just sit there and be an armchair preacher and preach at all the other people who aren't doing this. You actually need to be doing it yourself. You need to take action because there's no there's no point for Paul to be saying all the things that he's saying, to be spending time writing this letter in prison. There's no point for Paul to subjugate himself to to being put in chains if he simply wanted us to just look at what he said and say, oh, yeah, that might be true. No, no, no. Paul wants us to actually act on the things that he is teaching. But I want to go back to a phrase that Paul says. He calls on them to walk in a manner that is worthy of their calling. And immediately upon reading this, my antennas lit up mostly because of the language of calling and living out your calling. That kind of phrase or idea of having a calling and living and pursuing your calling and your purpose. And this is pretty popular language today. It's a pretty popular theme. Um, not just among Christians, but among a lot of people, but especially we see this in modern churches. And it's this idea that we all have our own individual purpose and calling. And if we only look deep enough within ourselves, we can reach our fullest potential. And what this, what this does is that it leads people to a more narcissistic view of Christianity and how God is operating in their lives 
than what the Bible actually teaches. I'm not here to say that we all don't have our own duties and things that we should be doing in our individual lives. That's not what I'm saying. We all certainly do. I, I, I definitely have the, the purpose of raising my daughters to be the best women and, and Christ-fearing women that they can be and to love my wife and to lead my wife and my family the very best that I possibly can. And there's some people who will never have children, so they definitely have a different you know, purpose as far as that goes than I do. I understand every single person has their own individual thing that they need to do and fulfill, but the, the idea of us having our own individual calling that we always have to search deep within ourselves to find, it doesn't seem to be fully supported biblically. The calling that we hear about, especially here in this verse, is one of a universal calling that God has placed on all believers. So the sentiment that we all have this individual calling, um, a lot of times, unfortunately, that contradicts God's word, if we're not careful. I'm here to say that that sentiment is mostly nonsense. And I hope that you'll hear me out here. Because I recognize that, you know, the Apostle Paul, that he may be a 2,000-year-old ancient dude that has no idea how society works today. But his wisdom and humanity is still accurate. For all time, it is quite clear to Paul that when left to our own devices, when left to following our own heart's desires, we automatically default to a position of sin and evil. Do you remember what Paul said in chapter 2 of this letter? He, he clearly pointed out that when they were left to their own devices, or when we, all humanity, when we're left to our own devices, in verse 3, Paul says, this is what happened to us. He says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Human beings, when left solely to their own desires and definition of good and evil, will always fall towards evil. This is why we need a guided, unified calling. And once again, this is not me saying that we all don't have our own gifts and abilities and talents that we should utilize and pursue in order to bring about the greatest good for God's kingdom. We all have our own talents. Your talent may be music. Another person's talent may be just being able to have a genuine conversation with a stranger, another person. You know, so you get the idea. We all have our own talents that God wants to use in a special way. But it all centers around a guided, unified calling. So when we think about the calling that Paul is talking about, besides beside his description of human nature, we quickly understand that the calling here in Ephesians 4 does not refer to an individualistic definition that we can just arbitrarily try and find within ourselves. Rather, it's a universal definition for all believers. All believers are called to a calling of something that looks almost perfectly similar to what Paul has laid out in the first three chapters of this letter. 
namely a life that centers around Christ and the knowledge of God that leads to the unity in the body of Christ, the body of Christ that is meant to be the new dwelling place of God. And and this knowledge may give you some comfort in knowing this, that you do not need to always have to find your individual purpose for yourself. That I hope that's freeing to somebody. This is something I'm still trying to work on because we've grown up in a society where we're told that every single individual person has to be um, so unique and so special and so standoutish that that they shouldn't and can't be similar in any way to anyone else. They have to be their own ray of sunshine. The whole world has to revolve around them. And I'm here to tell you that, um, look, you you may lead a life that to the rest of the world may seem boring because you're not out here doing a bunch of innovation or being an influencer or doing X, Y, and Z that is so is deemed as so important in our culture today. But you can at least take comfort in knowing this is that the the purpose that God has called you to is largely laid out in the first three chapters of what Paul is writing here. I'm going to say it again, namely that you you live a life that centers around Christ and the knowledge of God that leads to the unity in the body of Christ, the body that is the new dwelling place of God. That is the purpose that each and every one of us is given. Whenever we accept Christ as our Lord and Savior, we are called to live a life that mirrors the example and the instruction that Jesus has laid out in his word. And if, man, if we, if we lived in a culture that understood that and accepted that, imagine how much better society would be. Imagine how much better our lives would be. But also imagine how much more fulfilled would the individuals within the larger amalgamation of the culture feel if they understood that their purpose wasn't centered around their own desires and making themselves feel enriched and feel good, but rather it was around living for a higher purpose in order to build up the community around you so that the people around you can see God working in your own life. Imagine the fulfillment that you would receive from that, knowing that everyone around you looks at you and they see an image of God. That's the purpose that we're called to. You're already given a purpose and a calling within the body of Christ. And if you were to live out that purpose to the best of your ability, you would be accomplishing far more than most people will ever accomplish in a lifetime. And the accomplishment wouldn't necessarily come in the form of monetary gain or job success or popularity per se, but it would come in the form of building up the community around you and showing them the love of Christ. And I don't understand why that alone isn't viewed as something that is honorable. It isn't viewed as something that should be strived for. It isn't viewed as a good goal to have by most of society. And unfortunately, I would say some parts of the church as well. 
let me get off my soapbox. <laughs> On to verse 2. So, a quick recap of verse 1. Paul wants them to walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling to which they have been called. And he continues on in verse 2 through 3 by saying that, that this calling that you've been called to, you need to do this with all humi- humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What Paul is essentially saying is this. I want you to live your life in a way that is consistent with your calling. And this is the calling that we just laid out here. And Paul is basically saying, I want you to do it, not because you feel like you have to. I don't want you to do this because you're trying to earn brownie points or because you want to uh, be seen as the person that is better than everyone else. Paul says, I want you to do this with humility and gentleness. That humility part's interesting because that humility part would be an aspect of us recognizing that we only have the ability to live out a purposeful calling in our life because we were disgusting, terrifyingly horrible sinners that did not deserve salvation but was given it as a gift of grace from the God who created us. That should strike humility in our hearts. We should, we should feel humble and grateful that we have the opportunity to live out a calling like this instead of facing the judgment that we most certainly deserved. But he wants us to be humble and gentle. He wants us to have patience with love toward each other. And he wants us to do it because we are eager to maintain the unity that comes from the Spirit. So why were they called to live out their calling? And why are we called to live out this calling? Was it for our own personal gain? No. It was so they and us can maintain unity in the body of Christ. The very same unity that defines God's spirit. And with this in mind, there is a certain way that they were to carry out their actions. They weren't to do it with disdain and annoyance. They were to do it with humility and gentleness and patience and love. And this implies that there is a way to take action towards God's calling without humility and gentleness, patience and love. There there is a way where you can try and act out God's calling and doing it for your own selfish gain. So with that in mind, the believers that Paul is writing to, and ourselves included, need to take guard. Paul is keen to this possibility, it seems. And I don't know, I I could be wrong, but it seems like he is aware, at the very least, of the disagreements within this community. He pointed out already in this letter that there were obvious problems when it comes to circumcision and and the meshing of Jews and Gentiles into one community. So he wants to make it clear that if we're really going to live like Christ, then we need to do more than just take action, right? Remember how I said at the beginning of the episode that it's not enough to just know what's right and wrong and know what you should be doing, but you need to take action? Well, it seems like Paul's going a step further and saying, not only do you need to also take action, but you also need to check the status of your heart before and during that action. 
Because all of the qualities that Paul lays out are the same qualities that Christ possesses when dealing with our iniquities. Humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with love. And if we truly are going to become unified under Christ's headship, then it follows that we need to also act according to the one who leads us while also acting for the right reasons. And if we fail to do this, then it becomes easier for the body of Christ to turn into a community of evil. Not saying that the body of Christ would ever become evil, but what would once be the body of Christ, or at least parts of it, it's very easy for those to be turned away if we do not check our hearts when we are doing the things that we are called to do. A good example of what can happen when a community lacks good, faithful, godly leaders and people. We see this in Psalm 12. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful poem, the entire psalm. Uh, but I'm just going to read the first two verses, and, and I want to make some observations because it really does pertain to what Paul is calling these people to. Verse 1 and 2, it says, Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor while flattering lips and a double heart they speak. Why is this psalm important? What can it tell us about the potential dangers of not following Paul's prescription in Ephesians 4? Well, a few things. For one, the psalmist makes note that the godly one is gone and the faithful have vanished from the people. This is his way of saying, hey, God, um, all of the faithful people in our community that followed you and worshipped you and and kept to your commandments and kept your word close to their heart, uh, you know, they did their best to live according to your word. But yeah, they no longer exist in this community. And I don't think the psalmist is saying that they all died or got kidnapped or anything like that. Uh, it seems clear to me, especially when you go on later in the poem, that he's saying that these people who were godly and faithful people have stopped being godly and faithful people. And because of that, in verse 2, it leads to everyone in the community uttering lies to their neighbor, saying flattering things with a double heart, meaning they'll say one thing, but be either thinking or meaning something different or say one thing to you, but then say something completely contradictory to someone else they're just trying to say things to make you feel good when they're actually trying to you know hurt you or stab you in the back and, and this is a poem that shows the unfortunate but natural result of a community where no one is godly and faithful to god's word what it leads to is chaos and if you read further into this psalm you'll read that the end result is this in verse 8 that on every side the wicked prowl as vileness is exalted among the children of man. So the psalmist is picking up on what I would say is an eternal truth that any community that has abandoned its faithfulness to God is destined to lead to wickedness and evil. I mean, look at the Old Testament. Pick a page in the Old Testament 
and the chances that you come across a passage or a verse that talks about how God's chosen people, Israel, that had a special covenant with God that said at the beginning of the covenant, we're going to keep all your commands. We're with you, God, ride or die. We will not turn against you. We will do everything we can to listen and to follow you. And then just a few chapters later are already violating the commands that God personally spoke to them. You see this all throughout the Bible. You read Judges. And over and over, they'll get a judge, right? Because they've fallen away and they've fallen into wickedness and you know all these bad things happen. Now they get a judge and okay, things seem to be going a little bit better, but then the judge fails. The whole community uh, abandons God and starts worshiping idols. And now they're back to all this suffering and pain and God saves them again. It is rinse, wash, and repeat. With God's chosen people throughout the whole Old Testament that they lived out this psalm. Uh, hey, God, there's no more godly people. There's no more faithful people. They've all turned away. And because of that, everyone is lying. Everyone is, is stabbing each other in the back. And vileness and wickedness defines our community. And many of us, if if we're vigilant, would say that we could see this playing out and happening in our respective states or countries or provinces today. But my point of bringing up this psalm is that in in this body of Christ, we are susceptible to the same outcome of wickedness and doublespeak if we are not living out the calling that we have been given. As the psalmist puts it, the faithful vanish. We are susceptible to that. And how I know that we are and that Paul understands that that's a possibility is because he prescribed actions that are very important. If Paul did not see this as being a possibility of God's, uh, of the, the church, the body of Christ, you know, falling apart and, and turning to wickedness, Paul would have never wrote these letters. He would have never said to them, hey, you guys already gave your life to Christ, right? You're, you're Christians. You believe in Jesus. Uh, you're good. Have fun. <laughs> he didn't do that. He pointed out the flaws that, if left alone, could have very easily caused problems. So Paul's prescribed actions are very important because all of these qualities are necessary to being a godly, faithful member of the body of Christ. We must be humble. We must be patient. And we must be loving toward our neighbor despite our differences. And for the recipients of Paul's letter, this calling, I'd imagine, would be difficult to always adhere to. Because like we pointed out in the intro, he is calling on two groups that historically looked down on each other and actively excluded each other to now come together in unity and to do so humbly and patiently with love. That is not an easy thing to do. But our calling to being one of God's faithful is not an easy thing to do either. That's the beauty of Paul's writing, though, is that the thing he has called them to do is not easy. But how can they sit there and complain to Paul or compare hardship when Paul has just told them in verse 1 that he's in prison because he has already lived out what he is asking them to do now. Remember that. 
Remember that Paul is writing this in prison because he has lived out this calling that he is asking them to do as well. So how can any of them or how can any of us sit here and complain or try to say that Paul doesn't understand what this would mean for my life and my friendships and my relationships? How can we sit here and say that to a man that sat in prison in a jail cell for doing what he is asking of us to do, doing it for God. How can we, how can we simply ignore that? 